Thanks for calling the Midnight Drive-In. No one is here to take your call. For more info, check out the Midnight Drive-In on Twitter at MNDriveInPod or find us on Facebook. If you want to email us, send it to the Midnight Drive-In at gmail.com. Remember, no outside food and drink. Anyone caught performing sexual acts at the drive-in will immediately be taken to the office. Unspeakable things will be done to you. Thanks for calling. Drive away your worries and cares at this drive-in theater. That's why, to familiarize you with the movie rating symbols which will be used by this theater, we present the following guide for parents and young people. X, no one under 17 admitted. I got distracted because pictures of, like, of various social media algorithms recommend fights from sporting events to me, but in this particular one, a bunch of them are dressed up as, like, old-timey sailors, and I, I got distracted by that. <laughs> so I'm going to turn that off now to make sure that I can concentrate on the conversation. Your, your brain going, is this sport fight or is this scene from Gangs of New York? It's, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Doug agrees with your assessment. Hey, I am I am nothing but a collection of very strange B-movie uh, metaphor. That's that's me. Not, nothing you said there was B movie. The only movie you <laughs> no. referenced was Gangs of New York. How is that a B movie? <laughs> Jesus, no. You you know what I mean. Scorsese. No, I don't. I really don't. <laughs> it is it, it is yeah. fucking shocking that that movie is a Scorsese movie. Can we can we talk about that for just one fucking second? I know we're not sure. talking about Gangs of New York let's, this week, look, but I would love to hear how it's shocking that that's a Scorsese movie because. What, is the definition what of about that movie says Scorsese to you? Go ahead. No, I was gonna. I was gonna say what. What part of that movie says Scorsese to you? Big bombastic stories set in New York, gangs going to war with one another. The isn't that every? Are we done? Like is that? Is that isn't that what all Scorsese movies are? I, I street-level street criminals getting involved in bigger battles, just like all of the others, but they changed the costumes. Nobody wears a suit in that one. I mean, but yeah, that's what I was going to say, but like the, the visual stylings, you think that looks like Scorsese's work? In the dialogue, you think that sounds like a Scorsese movie? Well, he doesn't write the dialogue. He just directs the films, but... If you just literally take one of Scorsese's movies and roll it back a couple hundred years, it's the exact same thing. Yeah, like I, if somebody I mean, came a to dude me fighting a dude, listen to me, a dude fighting in a fight scene with a big iron cross that that sounds like Scorsese to you. I'm saying if you told me that you, if you told me right now, if if you were like, by the way, one of these other Scorsese films, The Irishman or whatever has a fight scene that takes place on the exact same street corner and you roll it back 200 years, you can literally see them fighting in the exact same spot. I would be like, yeah, okay. They've just modernized the weapons for this other fight versus the fight in this other film. I, I mean, I just, yeah, I, just I, I don't know. That's weird. <laughs> me, to me, that, that it's just bizarre. It's so, it's so hyper stylized. Like that's not, 
It's just not a hallmark of Scorsese. No, not like in Goodfellas where the guy is testifying in court and then turns to the camera and gets up and walks off of the witness stand and continues the speech directly into camera. It's nothing hyper-stylized like that, right? No. God damn it. <laughs> this, com- this, com- this conversation is going to frustrate me. You know exactly what the fuck I mean. I, I'm trying to be polite here. And I legitimately don't understand how you can watch Gangs of New York. Like, if I watched Gangs of New York blind, I'd be like, I wonder why Martin Scorsese just set, decided to set one of his movies in a different era. That's my response to that. I think it's the definition of Scorsese. Just, just you know, re-contextualized re, uh, to a different time period. I'm like eight drinks in, and I just said recontextualized without screwing it up. So I think you guys should just let me win the argument. By the way, yeah, we're just we're just gonna walk away from this. I don't I don't even know how to have uh... this discussion anymore. I don't I don't know how we compare fucking Scorsese's entire filmography to this one film that is wildly different than all of his other films. I know because it's completely different if you set it a slightly different time period. On, on the same street corner, but 200 years earlier is a totally different film. I just uh, realized I still have my ex-wife's copy of Gangs of New York on my shelf. Oh, that's yours now. You won that. <sighs> sure is. You, you just won that. She was a big fan of that movie. I've only ever seen it once and wasn't that impressed with it. Oh. That, that fucking opening fight scene is worth it. Probably great. I don't remember anything about it other than... Uh, <laughs> fucking uh what's his name bill the butcher uh daniel day lewis mm-hmm. he actually taps his eye with an actual fucking knife and that's kind of fucked up yeah it's pretty fucked up you had to put in a, he put in like a glass contact essentially to do it there's a weird fun yeah. fact about me though my doctor wanted me to get one of those like glass contacts and i just basically refused because i'm like i'm not putting that thing in and taking it out so we're not having that daniel Daniel Day-Lewis and fucking, uh, what the fuck, Liam Neeson? There we go. What did my brain, I swear to God, every once in a while, I'm in the mid-sentence, my brain goes, delete. (laughs) You don't need the next word. But yeah, man, they beat the fuck out of each other. It's really great. Mm -hmm. They sure do. Do Do you know know what else took place in uh, New York? Big old celebration in Times Square for when it was New Year's 2000? Hey, Y2K. Uh, sure. That's going to have to be our segue for the week, I guess. That's all we got? I don't know. That's, you that's, got a better one? I don't know. It's pretty weak, though. I'm not in charge of it. Don't act like it's my job. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's what you, you guys know it's pretty great. Boobs. Lots of, lots oh. of boobs. Why? Interesting that you bring that up, because I have some points to make surrounding boobs in this week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, Doug, why don't you tell us about uh, End of Days, since that one takes place in New York. <laughs> and you prefer your segue to Noah's. No, I don't really care either way. Anyways, uh, End of Days, uh, it's approaching the Y2K New Year, and the devil's going to come back by getting Gabriel Byrne to be his physical form on Earth and impregnating the girl from Empire Records. Uh, but Arnold Schwarzenegger wants to stop that. Is that enough? Sure. All right. 
How'd you feel about this rewatch of End of Days? Uh, here's the thing about this movie. Can I? Uh, it's not bad, and I don't want to say it's bad. But man, what a missed opportunity! On because, on paper, this movie is fucking awesome. Because yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Like that's the thing is the a lot of this is like a great horror action thriller movie. Mm-hmm. But they went out and got a guy that directed a bunch of John Claude Van Damme movies to direct it. And then hired Arnold Schwarzenegger for the lead. And you're like, well, now you're making a different movie. I was going to say my biggest complaint is the biggest problem with the movie is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. It's, and I don't think he's terrible in the movie. I just think he's miscast. He's not, he's not in the same movie. Everybody else is in. I don't, I, here's the thing. I I would love to know if they changed that script for Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. or if that was always the script. Well, well, because you know we've talked about Arnold movies a thousand times, and Arnold's one-liners are kind of like epic, you know, yeah. generally speaking. But this movie is chock a block full of him delivering one-liners that fall so fucking flat. I agree. Um, But I would point out that that whole like helicopter fight sequence that happens at the beginning, that's not on him, right? Like that's on, I would put that on the director and it's every bit as big a problem as the one-liners are. Because you you look at it and you go, okay, so we need a guy. He's like the devil comes to earth and embodies this guy. And they're like, okay, we cast Gabriel Byrne as that guy. And it's like, yeah, obviously. Good choice. Like, Like it's not even it's not even a good choice. It's like it's just uh, it feels like a casting director should get fired for making that suggestion because you can do that job without them in the room, right? <laughs> and then you're like, <laughs> but then you're like, we also need like somebody that's going to feed snake blood to a baby so that the baby will grow up to be <clears throat> a person that that person that that Gabriel Byrne wants to impregnate. So, like, someone get Udo Kier on the phone. Yeah, yeah. like, yeah. and you're just like, again, you're like, we don't need a casting director for this job. Like, these roles write themselves. And even, like, like Kevin Pollack plays uh, Schwarzenegger's partner in the film. And you're like, okay, we need a guy that's kind of, like, he needs to come across as kind of tough, but also kind of smarmy, but also have, like, be able to, like, kind of be sarcastic and be a little bit of a prick because he's going to be the foil to our main character. All right. Again, like Hollywood default suggests that you would go with Kevin Pollock for that role. And then all of a sudden you get to the main role and you're like, okay, so who's going to be our lead? And you're like, uh, we need the biggest, most smart ass action hero in the world. And you're like, no, I don't, I don't think that's right. I think that, I think that probably you need a more serious actor in that role. Mm -hmm. And I, Somewhere along the line, there's a studio executive who made a decision that this should be an action movie instead of a horror movie. And that studio executive was wrong, that this should have been a horror movie. And maybe that meant scaling the budget down a little bit or whatever. I understand that. But you you needed to have a horror movie director and a horror movie actor in your two main roles. And they failed when it came to that. So you think a horror movie actor would have been better? Yeah. I I think I think what you needed in the role was just so there's there's a difference between an actor and a personality, right? Agreed. Agreed. They're they're two different things, you know. 
and Arnold is a personality and you needed an actor. I th- I think this would have been like equally bad if you put someone else in it like uh Oh, I don't I don't know. I don't want to say Stallone cuz that's basically the exact same fucking thing. <laughs> No, sure. and, and I agree. Any any personality, like even if you put like a Bruce Campbell in that main role, who we all love, right? But that's not what that role calls for. It calls for a genuine actor. Yeah, yeah, or even arguably somebody like Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington would still be bad because he would be hanging his way through the movie because he's Denzel yeah. Washington, right? <laughs> yeah, no, you need you need a you need an actor in that role. You need somebody who's going to embody the character. But likewise, I think you need a director who's going to lean into the fact that this is a horror thriller film and not play up the action elements so much. Because no. there's there's a great core concept here of this cop trying to protect this girl. I guess like maybe my plot description was a little bit too simplistic, but where the where the story goes is that this cop who has lost his faith is going to have to protect this girl from the devil, knowing full well that he can't stop the devil. So it's a Terminator situation, right? It's ironically with Schwarzenegger in it. It's, I don't need to beat you. I I can't stop you, but I can hold you off long enough, right? I can keep pumping bullets into you and running away long enough to keep this fight until, and he only has to make it until midnight on New Year's Eve. To, to stop the world from ending. Yeah, luck- yeah, luckily, even by horror movie standards, this this evil being's rule set is just the most fucking arbitrarily simple weird shit. <laughs> They're but like, I, I listen, the world ends if this guy can fuck this chick between this one <laughs> hour period. But, I mean, it, it sets up a fun dynamic, right? From a horror movie perspective, the idea that this guy with basically unlimited power, all he needs is this very simple thing, and you've got a very human character whose whole job is just stop that from happening. And at the beginning, you have that dynamic of him, like, having lost his faith because of his wife and daughter dying off screen before the movie starts. And him committing to this job of I'm just going to stop this, and you could, you could theoretically set up like a really like dark but fun to watch movie where he's just keeping her alive, and maybe he has to sacrifice himself just to make her not like it's it's weird to say it, but like if he could prevent the devil from raping that girl by 15 minutes, that would save the world. So if he can just find a way to sacrifice himself to end the movie where he dies, but she gets to not have sex with the devil for 15 extra minutes <laughs> and therefore the world doesn't end. And that kind of counts as a happy ending. Like you could do something with that, but they didn't want to, they didn't commit to the idea. Right. And, and I think a lot of it comes with hiring this director who made like, again, he made the John claude Van Damme die hard in a hockey arena movie. I think, and you're like, okay, great. That movie's fun. I like that movie, but it's not what you need for this movie, you know. And I, I feel like somebody in the studio level refused to commit to this being a horror movie, and therefore refused. Therefore, the the film ends up feeling like a failure, even though a lot of the individual elements of it are done quite well. 
the movie overall feels like it's missing something because it's it's a swing and a miss kind of thing. Right. We also so, we also need to take two seconds to step aside and point out that Mark Magolas plays the fucking Pope in this movie for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's important, but it really is. I was I was dying laughing. I was like, "Where's his like little bell?" Because <laughs> he's he digging in the bell. Yeah. And just like, to be digging the bell to have someone come come talk to him. It, it took me a minute when I was watching this and you sit in the wheelchair. And I'm like, why does this feel familiar? And then I went on IMDb and went like, oh, right. So my suggestion for recasting was actually going to end up being Bruce Willis. No. Because you say no. <laughs> but I, I say for the movie that we have, because he can handle the action stuff, but he can also handle like the quieter moments. Where when Schwarzenegger's like crying over his dead family, like I almost start laughing because it's so bad. But I got to, I got to stop the devil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the thing, though. Like if you watch some of Schwarzenegger's later work when he decided to get into more dramatic stuff, uh, there was oh, was that one? Can't can't remember the one where his like his family died in like a plane crash or whatever. And then there's like Maggie movie that he did. Like post being governor when he came back to acting and knew he couldn't do action movies anymore. Yeah. I'm like, he can do stuff given the right circumstances. A lot of this for me falls on the hiring of a director who doesn't know how to make that kind of movie or has never made that kind of movie. And well, you know, to be fair, I think at that time period, no matter what director it was, nobody was going to have control over Schwarzenegger no matter what. With the, 1999? I think that's yeah. important to point that out. 1999. This isn't 1989. No, but I still think he had he had a big pull in Hollywood. You got to remember, Batman and Robin was the only the year before. And yes, that movie is terrible. But Schwarzenegger basically is like, "Hey, I want to be in the Batman movie," and they're like, "Okay, sir, whatever you want, sir." Yeah, but and then they had to make it up. This is his makeup. <laughs> How role. great! How great like would it have been if he'd been Austrian Bane? <laughs> I need to pin him. He would have been much better as Bane, by the way, than Mister. F- Anyways, um, my point is kind of the same. I think that you're saying just from a different perspective of like when he failed that hard the year before of trying to be himself. Sure. And to me, Schwarzenegger takes this role knowing full well he's got to do something different because. There's no way I don't when it comes to the Batman and Robin thing, nobody can possibly have finished filming that movie believing they'd made a good movie. It's impossible. Right? Like I, a lot of movies you hear like actors and stuff say that when they finish it, they think they made a good movie and then they go to theater and see it and realize nope, didn't, right? But in that particular case, I feel like everyone knew about five percent of the way through shooting that their movie they were making was bullshit and they all gave up right oh no um what's his face um schumacher is admitted that, like he basically had no uh had no hope on that movie yeah he had so. no he had no intentions of making a good movie and i think everyone knew that pretty early on and, oh he had intentions of making as good a movie as he could but all the restrictions the studio put on him, like there was no way it was going to be good. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> sell, sell toys, Schumacher, you piece of shit. That was it. 
They told them they need every character needed like three costume changes and vehicles and whatever so they could sell toys. Point being, I think everyone coming out of that knew they needed to come back from it. And I think Schwarzenegger probably took this role a year later wanting something completely different. So then when they have him jumping out of helicopters and shit in the opening scenes, going, well, this isn't that different. I'm pretty sure people jumped out of helicopters in that last movie. (laughs) You know, again, I feel like, I feel like probably the real problem with this movie lays somewhere higher up in the studio levels where a decision was made that we're making actiony stuff, not like, like this budget was too big for a horror movie or something. I don't, uh, I don't necessarily disagree, but I feel like, uh, um, I don't, I don't feel like not taking into account Schwarzenegger being Schwarzenegger is unfair because I'm sure he, uh, um, I'm sure he demanded whatever in this movie. Yeah. He was probably the one who was like, "No, when you do this helicopter scene, it's going to be great." And everybody's just like, "Arnold, we don't need it." I don't know. But I mean, we weren't on set. I'm not going to beleaguer too much time on arguing over this, but sure, you know. Famously, he wanted to change We Will Be Back to some other line, or I'll Be Back to some other line. And he has readily acknowledged that he was wrong and that he needs to learn to shut up and do his job. I will return at a later date. (laughs) So, like, he's he seems to know that he's not a writer. Um, And so, like, in my opinion, he probably would have done what they told him based on the script he signed on on. But anyways, do you guys want to get into the more specifics of the movie and of yelling at each other about Batman and Robin? Uh, yeah, not not enough Udo. You don't bring Udo into a movie like this and then not use more Udo. Listen, we all want mo- more Udo, but Udo in mainstream cinema is, is pretty uh, rare. And I think I was just excited to see him in a movie this big. <laughs> At the beginning of the and, movie, though, when they're like, like you see Udo Kier pick up a snake and slice it open and then put some of the blood on his finger and feed it to a baby. Anybody else kind of think like, shit, I didn't know this was a documentary. Like, <laughs> I, didn't, I was like, what is going on here? And then, uh, oh, what's her face? Uh, Mark Goles. Uh, is it Miriam? Is Miriam. that her name? Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. She plays that character that she always fucking plays in every fucking movie, which is secretly evil, kindly grandma. <laughs> so we all of her think we're good at doing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, she is. What a what a fucking narrow typecast she's had on her career. <laughs> she also recently said in an interview that she didn't like working on this movie because Arnold Schwarzenegger farted in her face. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me like her more. Like, what was what was your biggest problem working on set? Well, Schwarzenegger fucking farted right next to my head. I love the idea that Brian has brought forth the argument that Schwarzenegger was probably really integral in writing the script to the film. Also, he farted in the act the actors' faces. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm I'm currently listening to the audiobook of the Last Action Heroes. Mm-hmm. About all the big 80s action heroes and sort of what happened to them. And Schwarzenegger and Stallone's onset behavior would not lead me to be surprised if uh, he had a big hand in coming up with stunts and whatever else. Yeah. Also, 
probably would be canceled. <laughs> oh, for sure. They, they'd be canceled like fuck now. Totally. But oh, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of what else to say about this movie because I think that, once again, I think like a lot of it, it should work better than it does, and it just doesn't. So like the action pieces are fine. They're they're actiony. The horror bits are fine. They're they're horror esque. There's something with the like the pacing and delivery of this movie. Yeah, that, I think. Would it be fair to say it's that a hard lot to of get the invested individually? Yeah, a yeah. lot of the scenes work individually but trying to flow them into one narrative is the issue. You know, like you you have this, this girl who was, we know as an audience, as a baby, she was born and kind of like selected to be the, I don't know, the breeder of the devil or whatever term <laughs> you want to use. And like, we're getting to know her. She's the devil baby but, mama. But then we're like, we're like, look, here's this, like this girl. She's like, good looking enough 20 years old like we're supposed to be really sympathetic towards her but we're jumping to that character straight from remember when this guy jumped out of a helicopter like the helicopter scene at the beginning i think is a real problem for the movie (laughs) it's like it like and, and that whole sequence of like we're chasing down trains and we've got these like like Schwarzenegger and Pollock are playing these like security guys that are both ex cops. And it's like, it's all a little bit convoluted and yeah. Yeah. The, the action, the action pieces don't serve the story. They're just action pieces. Exactly. So why not just have Pollock and Schwarzenegger as cops on scene who stumble across some weird guy? Cause that whole thing where like they, they fight this guy on the roof of the building and then he turns out to be a priest who cut out his own tongue, but they're still hearing him talk because of whatever. It's like, all that could be crazy. Jesus magic. Yeah. Like, like, like all that, all that could work in a weird way, but it's all the, the action sequence don't, don't just not serve the story. They take away from the story, I guess is the way I would look at it. Right. Well, and there's like a bunch of like character items that don't, I feel like they don't ever pan out correctly. So in the movie, they call attention multiple times to the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger's character is supposed to have a drinking problem, Mm -hmm. but that never actually pans out to anything in the movie. Right. And, you know, he's supposed to also, they kind of point out that while he has good intentions most of the time, that he is kind of a bad fucking person, right? He's kind of violent and not afraid to hurt people and yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And again, that never really actually pans out. Like, you yeah. kind of have the, the last temptation scene of the devil coming to his house and being like, you know, I can, I can make your life happy again and get rid of all this stuff. But there's again. never really a moment that you believe he's being tempted even though he's supposed to be an alcoholic yeah. bad person because they because he's been played up as an action hero and that's how you're seeing him right that's what it comes down to like the whole his character arc is supposed to be his wife and kid died before the movie he was a religious guy he's lost his faith turned to alcohol is contemplating suicide and through all these interactions with the devil and this girl he becomes a good person again, gives up all of his like past like vices, dedicates himself to doing the right thing and eventually has to like kill himself as part of the finale. That's kind of how the movie goes. Right. And they sort of, 
they don't play it up that way. It's not played as this tragic character. It's played up as an action hero. And action heroes don't really have character arcs, you know? Rambo in Rambo 3 doesn't go to Afghanistan, not sure who the good guys are, and then pick a side. He knows damn well when he gets there who he wants to kill and who he doesn't want to kill, and he shoots the fuck out of the people he wants to kill, and that's it. That's what action right. movies stars do, right? Well, and once again, and in in it cheapens stuff. So the, the insinuation that maybe he is, like... Not not suicidal in the traditional sense, like he's not going to hang himself tomorrow or something, but maybe he is intentionally putting himself in danger on purpose to, like, end it all. Well, the movie ends with a moment of self-sacrifice, right? Which is cheapened if the guy is willing to die. Like, he was willing to die the entire time. There is That's not a moment of self-sacrifice. That's just him doing the thing you would expect well, him to do. It's... The idea is, I think, in the movie, because we do see the moment early on when he's got the gun, he's like ready to do himself. And basically his partner shows up and that's what stops it at the beginning of the movie, right? And at the end when he does sacrifice it, I think the idea is supposed to be that he goes from I'm killing myself out of depression to I'm killing myself to save someone else. That's the idea, right? Like the ending is supposed to be the exorcist ending. Of I'm going to absorb the devil into me and kill my body to keep the devil away from this innocent person who's done nothing wrong. This sweet girl who is just trying to live her life. And they're not capable of portraying that. The fact that we're not sure exactly how it was supposed to be portrayed says that they didn't portray it right. Um, I have three better or worses. Okay. People who were offered to be a part of this movie and decided not to. All right. So let's see if this is better or worse. So the lead character was originally written for Tom Cruise. Worse. Fucking Tom Cruise. Fucked. <laughs> here's, here's the thing. I get, I get it. I get that people fucking love him and all this. I don't. Tom Cruise is not a good actor and he never has been. I don't get it. No, I can't. Uh, uh, I, I don't, don't mind. Like we're talking the Schwarzenegger role for Cruz, right? Yeah. I can't, yeah. I can't even like, cause the action stuff would be worse with Cruz. The drama stuff would be worse with Cruz. The horror stuff would be worse with Cruz. Yeah. Mission, mission impossible with the devil. Yeah. You think the yeah. drama would be worse with Cruz? The Cruz is a worse dramatic actor than Arnold Schwarzenegger. For the purposes of this movie at this time. Yes. Keeping in mind, I just watched um, the Kubrick film that he was in. We talked about last week. Yeah, and I didn't watch that. And I didn't think he was very good in that. And that's the same year, right? So, well, I don't know. He uh, he went to do Magnolia instead of this movie. Um, apparently, Liv Tyler was offered the role of the 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 girl. Um, See, I'd be fine. Yeah, I, I don't have any problem. I don't think, like, I think the girl, I don't know her name, but Empire Records. Robin girl, Tunney? Yeah, like, I think she was fine. Um, I think, I don't know that the actress had much to do. I think it's more the way it's written. Anything, yeah. any issues I have with that character are like, she's not a big enough part of the story. Um, but I've, I think Liv Tyler could totally do it. Um, and I think yeah. this girl was good as well. I don't think that's. Ironically, they were both in Empire Records together. What about, wasn't there a third girl in Empire Records? What about her? <laughs> Renee Zellweger? Yes. She, you know what? She could have done it too. Any any of the three of them could have done it. 
again, it's, it's just, not. As it turns, not a, as uh, it turns out, in the mid '90s, they weren't really writing uh, roles for women. Yeah, no, and that's I, weird. I, I think that the role is relatively simplistic. I think all three of those are talented actresses, and all three of them are capable of more than what this film demanded of them. Let's put it that way. All right. Um, and this one, I think, is what would have had the biggest shift in this movie that I think may have been more of a positive. Apparently, uh, the director's chair was offered to Guillermo del Toro, but he turned it down. <laughs> yes, it would be better. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, would this be so much better of a movie with del Toro in the director's chair? Oh, my God. I just imagine that discussion of them being like, hey, do you want to direct this movie? Yeah, tell me about it. Oh, well, it's about the devil coming to Earth and this woman's chosen to be the vessel of his love baby. And, you know, this other guy's got to stop him. And he's like, oh, yeah, that sounds like my speed. So do do I get to pick the actors? And they're like, no, it's going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he's like, nope. <laughs> Out. In my head, I almost figure as soon as they announce that the character trying to stop the devil is the hero, that's when Del Toro was like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> it's not really my story at this point. Uh, right, oh my another God, one, I now, guess. Can I just, I really want Del Toro's yeah. version of this story, though. Imagine, sure. how, imagine how beautiful it would be. Cause he, cause, oh, it would be gorgeous. Like When we talked about... Um, the devil's backbone a while back. And could you imagine like the drama that he was able to bring to that film, given the right actors telling this story with that level of drama and that darkness and that seriousness to it could be amazing. (laughs) Although, you know what the funny thing is? He could go the exact other way. And if they wanted to keep it with the action pieces and stuff, it's basically just a Hellboy sequel. You just replace sure. Arnold with Ronald Perlman <laughs> as Hellboy in the ex- almost in the exact same movie as we just watched, and it's fucking awesome. Oh, I well, think Ron Perlman would be way better in that role. Yeah, because you, you could also like that's the other thing that they could, we we keep saying, or I keep saying, I shouldn't put it on you guys, that they lean too hard into the action and not enough into the horror and the drama of this film. But you could go the other way. With it. You could make this into a better action movie. And spend a lot, like, make it 90 minutes, add in two or three more shootouts. And there could be a lot of fun to be had there. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, there's nothing wrong with making an action movie about the devil. There's just something wrong with trying to make a horror movie and then adding action sequences into it. Which is, I feel like, what they did here. Um, Apparently they also offered the director's chair to Sam Raimi. It feels like a very, very different film from Delta. <laughs> it's completely I, opposite. I was going to say, is... the one thing I can say that this movie doesn't have a lot of in it is just overt silliness. And, none. And, and Raimi would be injecting a lot of overt silliness. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting idea to have Raimi do it. Again, it's a, if Raimi does it, I think it's a completely different film. Like I think you could take the same script and give it to Raimi or give it to Del Toro and just release it twice and nobody would know you were using the same script. I mean, what what you would lose in the Raimi version is you wouldn't get that great scene of is that your wife? Is that your daughter? <laughs> um also, I guess this proves that Schwarzenegger was on board before the director was. Um they couldn't find a director, so James Cameron dire- recommended Peter Hyams to direct. Oh. So, I hate to say it, but I'm not a Cameron fan. 
Wow. I don't I don't understand how James Cameron has as much sway as he does in Hollywood for the fact that the dude makes one fucking movie every 25 fucking years. Because he makes huge movies and Hollywood is built on egos. That's what it is, plain and simple. Yeah, but he, of course he makes huge movies. He has 25 years to market each one of his projects. In a post-Titanic world, he makes movies big enough. Or I guess in a post-T2 world, let's be honest. It started back then. His movies make enough money to probably the producers win producers guild awards or something. Whatever it is feeds their ego. I don't even know if those awards exist, but whatever it is feeds their ego that they get to feel like big people for hiring him. So therefore he gets to do what he wants. Hollywood is not a rational industry. Uh, Apparently there's an alternate ending where Jericho uh, is resurrected after impaling himself on the sword. He leaves the church with Christine. All right, well. Test audiences were like, that's dumb. Yeah, well, you lost me when you reminded me the character's name was Jericho, by the way. This Jesus Christ. Jericho Kane, to be exact. <sighs> this is the first non-Terminator film in which Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a character who dies, making this the first human character he plays that ends up dying. I mean, it, it's in addition to the fact that his name's Jericho... I don't know if you guys noticed, but this entire movie, everyone is named shit like that, mm-hmm. where they're like, oh, this is clever. And you're like, that's not fucking clever. That's, that's fucking stupid. Like, like the priest's name is Thomas Aquinas, literally the name of a famous Italian priest. <laughs> like, yeah. And her name is Christine. <laughs> it's got Christ in it. Get it? No, like, I don't get it. Can you explain it further, please? Yeah, yeah. Jesus, <laughs> this fuck. This whole movie is like that, though. That you're like, oh, shut no, no, no. the fuck up it's, every it's, second. It feels like every name is that. And if you look at the um, IMDb, like Gabriel Byrne's character doesn't have a name, and it feels like somebody thought they were. I don't know. Like, does it feel like somebody thought they were being really clever by not giving him a name, as opposed to a coincidence where it works out he doesn't have a name, like? I don't know. It all feels that way. Who knows? I think this is going to sound like a like a weird criticism of the film, but like, does it feel like this movie would have been better if they just knew what level of movie they were making? Like, they all think they're making a better movie than they are. Like, either make a better movie or live with the fact that you're making a B movie and make it that one or the other. Like, and that where it feels like they're trying to make an A, like an A list drama film. And they fail. Or if they would just be making a B-movie and having fun with all this stuff, great. But instead, they're in this middle ground where they're trying to they're trying to take B-material and make an A-movie with it. And they're not capable of doing that. Yeah. I'm telling you, Schwarzenegger. Uh, I don't know that the blame lies squarely on him. Again, I, I look at that director and I think... And I look at the list of directors that you gave me, and it tells me it's a producer problem because, yeah, obviously we all made it pretty clear we want to see the Del Toro version of this film, I think. <laughs> but yeah. the Sam Raimi version of this film is super fun, too. And then they went yeah. out and hired this middle-of-the-ground director, and what did they get? A middle-of-the-ground movie. That's There are elements of this that remind you of the Raimi version. There are elements of this that remind you of the Del Toro version but nothing gets anywhere near 
either of those films. And I think both of those films would be fun to watch. And instead we get a film that's very middling because it's a middle of the ground director with middle of the ground actors doing middle of the ground script work. Like it's whatever. Uh, so for the Raimi version, does Bruce Campbell play Jericho or does he play the devil? Oh, it's interesting. See if it was made today. <laughs> he's, he's the Udo character. <laughs> if it's made today, I think he's the priest with no tongue and that guy's hilarious. But, um, <laughs> but in 1999, oh shit, I don't know. I think he'd be more fun as the devil character. I'll tell you that. Probably. That's the one I want him to play, but whether it's where he would end up or not is a different question. Yeah. I have surprisingly little sway in Hollywood, so. You know, well, Amy... you know, Ted's definitely the buddy cop, right? Oh, yeah, of course. We all knew that. That's, that's, a, we weren't even that's why we didn't that. bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> same way we all know Udo Kier is the one feeding blood to the baby we all know that Ted's <laughs> that's so funny yeah he hadn't made Spider-Man yet so he he didn't get a chance yeah. to, to do whatever the fuck he wanted yet. but uh, like I could, if you put Bruce Campbell in that devil role and you put Ted Raimi in that in that sidekick role and you get some like lower level action hero in that main role, but you take, I don't know. I, I don't know what the budget of this film is, but cut it in half by doing that and go, okay, now, now like now give Sam Raimi creative control. I mean, that's a hell of a fun movie. It's not like a scary movie by any stretch of the imagination. And it's not a great action movie, but it's super fun to watch. And it's weird as shit. And I kind of want to see it. Um, estimated budget was a hundred million dollars. Hundred million for this. So when I said cut it in half, no, in nineteen ninety nine with, with with Bruce Campbell as the devil on twenty, you cut it on, down to about ten million. Yeah, tw- they call it, if you gave it twenty five million, right? Yeah. Give I think twenty million is what like Kevin Smith got for Jane Silent Bob Strike Back around this time. Like if you give that to <laughs> Sam Raimi, I think you got a hell of a movie out of it. Like I, yeah, I only made uh, sixty seven million. Box office. I paid to see it in theaters. I didn't stay awake through it, but I did pay to so see I. it. So I paid it. I watched it. I, re- I remember getting woken up partway through this movie, being like, "You probably don't want to miss the end. You paid to be here." And I was still like young enough in 1999 where I was like, "Shit, I paid money to see this. I better wake up." And I'm like, <laughs> "But I, I don't know." Overall, I think this movie is, it, there's a lot of positives about it. I think it's got a lot of like good visuals, a lot of like solid performances from all of the supporting cast. Everyone except Schwarzenegger, I think is good. Um, just doesn't quite hit the mark, you know? Yeah, unfortunately, I agree. Oh, Raimi went and made uh, For Love of the Game instead of this. That's a rough its one. Budget was, its budget was $80 million. Yeah, that's a rough one. You seen for Love of the I, Game? Yeah, I remember liking it, but I haven't watched it. In All I remember years, from probably. that is like Kevin Costner trying to like, and his like girlfriend are trying to play like people that like they broke up, and now it's like five years later or whatever, and they're meeting yeah. up, and he's like totally grown up, but they broke up at like thirty five and are meeting up again at forty, and I remember thinking like that's not how that works, like it's. <laughs> like an 18 year old and it breaks up with his girlfriend and then at 25 meets her again. It's like, Oh, it's too bad. We didn't meet now when we're more mature. I get that. 
a 35 year old breaks up with his girlfriend and then at 40 meets up with her again. It's like, now I've matured. And it's like, no, you haven't. You're just pretending. Shut up. <laughs> Go pitch in the baseball game. You're clearly too old to play in. Uh, 80 million budget. Apparently made 35 yeah. million with the box office. Well, I don't know who the hell gave an $80 million budget to a movie. That's to a baseball movie. It's, it's entirely, <laughs> it, I mean, we're way off topic, but that movie is basically one long baseball game and the pitcher is having flashbacks during it. So yeah. is that worth $80 million? Did that seem like a good idea? Probably like 70 of it was just went to Costner. Yeah. Oh yeah. And by the way, Kevin Costner plays the lead character. So in 1999, not this is, this is not Kevin Costner in 1989 when he should have been playing a baseball player. <laughs> he did though on Bull Durham, right? Yeah, is that around 89? Maybe. Did he play like an aging baseball player in 1989? <laughs> I don't know if you know how athletes work, but they tend to retire pretty young. Ooh, close. 88. 88. And he was like a yeah. veteran. In the 88 movie, right? If I remember Bull Durham correctly. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen that, too. <laughs> All right. Anyways. Uh, hey, Noah, do you want to tell us about Strange Days? Yeah. So, Strange Days is... <laughs> well, if you read the movie description, you're going to get an entirely different fucking idea about what this movie is. Really? I've never read the movie description. I've seen this movie 10 times. I've never, I've never read it. So we have an ex cop who is now a dealer in, uh, I do believe they call it wire, which is essentially that you can record the experiences of one person and transplant them directly into your brain. Which is, I don't know, that's a pretty cool conceit for a sci-fi movie. I'm into yeah. it. I actually kind of dig the uh, the background they give later in the movie is that it was developed um, at, literally as, like, instead of wiring somebody for sound when they go into, like, a meeting, you're going to do this so the feds can catch criminals, and then it's gone, like, black market where they're making porn out of it and stuff. And I'm like, yep, it's, it's actually a pretty neat idea. <laughs> Uh, yep, that tracks. Uh, his his ex girlfriend slash wife, maybe, uh, is Juliette Lewis, uh, who is in full rock and roll skank mode in this mo- movie, which I'm a big <laughs> fan of. J- Juliette Lewis, whenever she's in rock and roll skank mode, is the best. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Uh, she is now with a record producer. Played by evil deep voice guy whose name I can never fucking remember. He's, he's, is his legal name is the bad guy from The Crow. Yeah, yeah, bad guy from The Crow. Yeah. Michael Wincott. Yeah. Yes, it's all, he also goes by that. Um, is it weird that Juliette Lewis played a teenager in From Dust Till Dawn a year after this movie? No. Yes. It's Hollywood. Are you kidding? What? <laughs> so... So, uh, moving on from there, uh, ostensibly, this movie is about uh, one of Juliette Lewis's ex-friends slash ex-cop electric drug dealer's friend apparently witnessed something and is now being hunted by evil cops and a serial killer. Mm -hmm. 
this turns into a weird conspiracy thing where they're trying to figure this out. And then at the very end of the movie, we find out. So this was all actually a completely different thing that happened, which is a much more interesting story that they completely fucking ignore for the entire movie. (laughs) (laughs) Which is that in the background, there is this broiling racial tension of... So get, get with this. So back whenever they shot this movie, they thought in the future that uh, police violence against black people was going to keep escalating until there were riots and, uh, oh yeah, an unimaginable future. Well, here, Noah, let me clue you in on our secondary theme for this week. Um, apparently, uh, James Cameron wrote, wrote the treatment for this. <laughs> of yeah, course he, he did. He's, he's, a, he's a script writer on the film. And his and he got the, the uh, he got the idea after the, uh, Rodney King incident. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so there's that going on, and it turns out that we found out a rapper guy got killed earlier in the movie, and you're thinking that maybe his producer killed him for money or something like that is going on. And in fact, it's just he was killed during a random traffic stop by a douchebag cop who happens to be played by Vincent D'Onofrio because this movie's cast is fucking out of goddamn control. <laughs> Vincent D'Onofrio who barely says a word in this whole movie. Yeah, yeah, can we accept that? Can we accept that every fucking bit player in this goddamn movie is an extremely talented but person? Can we? Yeah, can we throw a, a little shout out to the casting director who's like, we need somebody who's intimidating as fuck, who's gonna, who's gonna, the whole movie's gonna center around a murder he created, but we have no time to set up a background for him at all or do anything else. Okay, so we'll just get Vincent D'Onofrio. How how did you know? Yeah, obviously. Like again, <laughs> like like he's perfect in the role, and you're like, I he doesn't do anything, but he's perfect in the role. <laughs> he's, he looked because he he doesn't even got to remember it's 1995. Vincent D'Onofrio. He doesn't even look intimidating yet. Like he's not. He doesn't seem big. It's those- I'll tell you what, those fucking facial expressions though, man. Exactly. He like he can he can go from a normal facial expression to a charming facial expression to like that look in his eye where you're like, oh like, fuck, that dude would kill me. Like like he can go from looking like a cop who's just pulling you over for speeding to a Scott who to a cop who's gonna pull you over and execute you in a half a second. And it can happen in front of your face and you have no idea that it happened, but you were fine with him a second ago and now you're scared of him? You mean like that? <laughs> like, Because he's so good in the movie and he does nothing. <laughs> he's yeah. so good. No, you think you think that's nothing? His partner's William fucking Pitchner. Like... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Once again, what in the fuck is happening in the cast of this movie? here's i I will say one of my criticisms of this movie is that i think it feels like it's too long and part of me wonders if like there was some poor bastard in the editing room trying to decide what to cut and he's like how do i cut any of these people like what am i gonna cut (laughs) what do you want me to do here there's yeah like there's there's too much but i can't what do you what am i supposed to do yeah, fucking Glenn uh, Glenn Plummer's the random rapper guy that gets fucking executed that has about three lines in the whole movie. 
and what's so, her face in which I can't I can't remember I I know her last name's French and I can't pronounce it but uh the random evil punk chick who looks like Tilda Swinton and David Bowie had no legitimate yeah. baby I can yeah. I cannot remember her fucking name she's really good she too by, and she's actually. been in a ton of stuff Yep yeah let's just let's run down the cast We haven't, we even pointed out that the lead character is is Ray Fiennes Excuse me it's pronounced Ralph Oh Ralph, I'm sorry. Sorry, just I don't. I know he gets upset if you mispronounce it, so it's pronounced Ralph. That's why there's an L in the name. He went by Ray Fiennes for a Listen, while, though. If there, if he wants it to be pronounced Rafe, he would take the L out of it. It's pronounced Ralph. Everybody else in the fucking world pronounces it Ralph. He can pronounce it Ralph too. Move on. <laughs> oh my god, it pisses me off to no end. <laughs> no, but I think he went by. Ray I know Fiennes, he did, and it, it angers R A Y. R-A-Y. But it has an L in it. Okay. Uh, Tom Sizemore plays like his his uh, fellow Jesus. private detective buddy. We, oh, yeah. So spoiler alert, he's the bad guy. Uh, can, we, can we talk about the fact? So this is the first time watch for me. I've never seen this before. And fucking Tom Sizemore, that fucking wig they have him in. <laughs> the whole movie. I keep going. Is nobody going to point out that he is wearing a psycho fucking wig? What in the fuck is happening? And then at the end, whenever they rip it off and it's like, oh, it's his, it's his head device. And I was like, okay, so it's a plot point that it's a wig, right? <laughs> but just nobody else noticed? Here's the thing. Here's the thing about that. And uh, I think it looks really good if you've never seen Tom Sizemore before. <laughs> like, I think it's a really good wig. And the whole plot point of it being torn off later and we find out that it's connected to one of these things that they use to connect into your brain and all that. I think it's all really well done, except we all know what times Tom Sizemore looks like. And therefore, the wig seems ridiculous. And therefore, we can all see it coming that it's going to be torn off his head. But it's really funny to watch it and just be like, oh, well, obviously he's wearing a wig. And we know that people who are wearing wigs in the movie have one of those things under their wig that connects to their brain to project this, like whatever you call it being wired in or whatever. But it's so funny that they're trying to portray it as not. And you're like, I don't know. I don't even know where that falls in 1995. Like did everyone know what Tom Sizemore looked like back then the way we do now? I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, See Angela Bassett plays like his, Friend, they have a weird relationship. That's, that that relationship is very strange. Yeah, she's she's clearly super into him, and he doesn't seem to notice because he's so distraught over uh, Juliette Lewis's character. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the plot. But uh, Richard Richard Edson plays Tick, who you probably don't know who what that name is, but if you've ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he's one of the garage attendants that. <laughs> Takes the car for a ride, and he kind of looks like a snake oh, for some reason. Thank God you clarified that for me, because it was in my brain. I'm like, who is that guy? <laughs> and now you're like, yep, looks like a snake. Yeah, no, that's who that was. Yeah. Um, Nicky Cat was in this, but he wasn't anybody yet, so that may not be important. He was, he was, he was Juliet Lewis's nipples both get a credit in this film because they're on screen so much. <laughs> right i didn't know she did so much nudity in this movie like i've seen it i've seen it once before but it's been so you know i wanted to she she is nude or in something 
that is impossibly see through through the entire movie. Yeah, no, yeah. she's clearly yeah. Can we talk about the fact that she randomly pulls down her top to wash her breasts in front of the camera on multiple occasions in this movie because her breasts just they keep getting dirty and she keeps needing to wash them on camera, which is it's interesting because which you would which you would say it's like oh man what a whoever the director was was gross but it's Catherine it's Catherine Bigelow. She's, she's like almost a feminist. It's so weird. <laughs> well, and once again, this is Juliet Lewis in full rock and roll skank mode, so it might have been her idea. Can can we veering off topic? Can we address the fact that like they just didn't know how to do nudity in the 90s the way they did in the 80s though? Cuz in the last movie there's like a random scene where the girl's like walking across camera and just takes her top off and you're like why'd she do that? Like what the hell just happened? <laughs> like and then in this one Juliet Lewis is pulling down her top to because she's like, "Oh, my boobs are so dirty. I better wash them in front of people." And I'm like, "I don't it feels like in the 80s when they wanted to have like breasts in a movie, they could just find a fun way to insert them in and it didn't feel so forced." And then by the 90s they're like, "No, this is what we have to do. We just have to pause everything and have her take her top off for no good reason." And I'm like, what what happened to the talent of showing boobs without without making it feel so awkward? Because it feels so awkward in these two movies. I don't know. Uh, did you guys at least it's almost the new millennium? Did you guys at least yeah. notice this? Am I, I'm not making it up, right? Like <laughs> it feels like they were like just pausing the movies and going, "Sorry, we need boobs," and we're like, "Okay, put some in here and here." Okay, we're good. Yeah. Based on the running time of the movie, we filled our percentage of boobs, and we can move on. Yeah. It, so as I mentioned earlier, I told you guys if you read the movie description, if you read the movie descriptions of this film, it basically only talks about the race war. It's like there's a race war going on. Oh, and Ray Fiennes is well, <laughs> trying to solve a conspiracy. But the race war has such a, in which let's let's talk about the very fucking uh 80s to 90s attitude this film takes towards things this ostensibly really at the end of the day is a movie about racial tensions and police violence and that takes place with two fucking white dudes fighting over a white girl where the only competent person in the movie is the black chick who's relegated to a secondary role in the background and you're saying she belongs there yeah, and, and in addition to all that problem, there is also uh, a rape scene in this movie, which in some ways is the worst rape scene ever put on film, because due to the way they use technology, he basically forces a woman to enjoy being raped, which yeah. is real. I don't know. That's dark on some other fucking level. Yeah. I... Yeah. So you, Char was unhappy. Char was very so unhappy you've, you've with touched, that scene. You've touched on several topics here. Um, if we take them in, let's take them in reverse. So the last thing you touched on was that rape scene. And I think, can we all agree one of the darkest things ever put on camera is forcing a woman to imagine the thoughts of her rapist while he's raping her, knowing full well that he's enjoying raping her. And it's this like it's the they, the way they describe it in the film. It's like this perpetuating loop of like the more she hates it, the more he's going to enjoy it, 
Therefore, the more she's going to enjoy it, which will make her hate it that much more, which will make him enjoy it that much more. And it's this, it's really gross and dark. And I feel like the movie didn't earn it, if that makes sense. Like, well, if, and if you're going to do something that dark, I feel like you have to earn it. And it didn't. I, I, I was going to say, here's, here's the weird thing, too, is that the level of darkness and the level of violation that's involved with it just just in the concept of it you didn't actually need to show it does it does that make sense well you uh, could just you could just like cut away from that very quickly and then be oh, like this is what that was and you're like fuck you know so what i mean i agree with what you're saying i'll take it a step further and say that a lot of this stuff was completely unnecessary because when push comes to shove, this movie is about the race war. Um, did we need a rape scene in it at all? Like, or could we have cut this movie down significantly and made it about the race war? About the fact, like the conspiracy of these police officers killed this guy who's a, this highly influential black leader, um, rapper character. And his girlfriend or the girl that was with him was wearing one of these wires and therefore has it basically recorded and could, it could be released to the public. That's enough of a story. That's enough of a mystery. That's enough of a, a thing. Why do we need this other element of like, why does this rape ever need to take place? And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's really weird. I feel like there's two, there's, we say this a lot. There's two movies here. Yeah. There's the movie about yeah. the race war and the girl witnessing it and finding and bringing to light the injustice and all that kind of stuff. And then there's a completely different movie about fucking Ralph Fiennes fighting with <laughs> fucking grow bad guy over his ex-girlfriend and at the yeah. same time battling a serial killer. Right. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying yeah. is like it we have enough there with the the racial storyline and that whole like that whole mystery of like why did this guy get killed? Who killed him? Okay, it was these cops. And then there's the implication that they're part of a bigger death squad thing that's doing like like I'm reminded of that movie Dark Blue with Kurt Russell where there's like cops out there who think it's their job to kill the bad guys no matter what. And they don't like they're executing people and I'm like, okay, all that is interesting. And you can, and it opens up a lot of room for discussion. And there's a lot of debate in this film when it comes to like, okay, we know that these cops killed these guys, but how do we get that information out to the public without causing a civil war kind of thing? <laughs> like, and all that's there. It's like, so why are we dealing with all this other stuff? It seems like all of the relationship stuff between Ray Fiennes and his ex, which is Juliet Lewis, like all that is like thrown in. Why? Like, how is it relevant to the main plot of the film? Even though it takes up 50% of the running time. Oh, I'd say more than 50. Yeah. Like, like it, I don't, it, it feels like most of the film is not relevant to the plot of the film. If that makes sense. Mm hmm. I agree, and this movie comes in at two and a half hours, yeah. so you could easily dump a good portion of that kind of stuff. And like, part of that is like this is a 1995 movie, and 
I remember seeing this in 1995 and not thinking it was a long movie at all. Um, but watching it now, you're like, okay, this is a long ass movie with a lot of stuff going on that isn't relevant because it's not 1995 anymore. You can't go look at how cool this technology is and make a half an hour of your movie be about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You could easily cut a bunch of stuff out and still make it work really well. Well, and I did, and there's one, so once again, so if we ignore, if we ignore the fact that they're ignoring the entire racial issue of the movie, which appears to be probably, well, I guess even then, because if it was about Rodney King and stuff, it's, it still would have been apropos then, right? Yeah. I, but, it, but let's ignore it and just go with weird sci-fi movie about a crazy technology. There is a scene in this movie that I felt like brought up an interesting thing. And I was like, Oh, I, I see where they're going to kind of go with that. And that it's never brought up again. And that's that this technology also has tremendous value. If you really stop and think about it. And that's the scene where he gives the, uh, the DJ or whatever, the video DJ at the club, a free thing. And all it is, is that guy doesn't have legs. And it's the feeling of walking on the beach with the water going over your feet. And you're like, yeah. okay, no, I see it now. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is why it's a drug. You know what I mean? It's not just porn and stuff. It's the fact that it can actually give you kind of in a way, the thing that you want the most. Yeah. I, but I, I feel like a lot of that stuff could have been done in 15 minutes of the introduction of the movie. You know, he's selling, he, it starts with him selling, the porn, basically the porn um, discs, I guess, of this stuff. Then you go into him going home and using it to relive his memories with his ex. And then he's delivering it to this DJ guy, allowing that guy to walk. And you're like, okay, that's all we need. Now we've established the technology. We understand it. We can all move on from that and get into our main storyline, right? Yeah. So did we like this movie? I, I I have mixed feelings about it. It's really cool. Good. I think it's got a good cast, good performances. I just, like I said, I think that, and I know with the kind of trash I walk, I'm, I'm one to say this, but it's, <laughs> but it's, they just, I don't know. They needed to, once again, we say this over and over, they need to pick a fucking lane and they didn't pick a lane. And so instead they make a movie that meanders about and it's got all of this fucking stuff I like in it, in which if we're going to do like Johnny Mnemonic plus fucking Juliette Lewis rock star boobs, right? I'm going to be like, fuck yeah, this, <laughs> let's do that. But you're not allowed to just casually chuck in a race war in the background and be like, yeah, that's going on too. <laughs> like, it, it does feel uh, that way. It feels very much like the definition of a film that didn't know what they were trying to be. I blame James Cameron for this, by the way. Like, I, that's who I blame because I don't think he's well, a good scriptwriter. <laughs> and I think, well, I was I was going to bring up he an uncredited. Un, he did an uncredited edit on the movie. Oh, so because he is credited as a writer, he's not credited as an editor because he wasn't part of the editors union yet. Okay, so he did he did a version of it. I don't know if they if they uh, what they changed after that, but. Apparently he did work. It, it feels like what they needed was a professional editor. <laughs> um, 
to yeah. take this movie down to the two hours that would have made it a good movie. Does that make sense? Like, I, I don't yep. think there's anything. It's Catherine Bigelow. She's a great storyteller. She's a great director. There's not a single scene in this film that isn't done well. Um, it's just somebody needs to streamline it and go, this is the story we're picking and this is the one we're going with. And no, you can't have both. You can't have you can't have your romance between Ralph Fiennes and Juliet Lewis and your race war storyline because in your race war storyline, the two main characters can't be from the same race. That's not how that works. Like it's, um, you know what I mean? It's, it feels like by the time they get to that rapper being gunned down, I'm like, Oh yeah, right. This is a movie about that. Like, why are we only learning? I, I wish I'd written down the timeline, but it feels like an hour and a half into the movie when that comes forward. And we're, it's too late in the movie to introduce us to those discussions about, you know, like when, when, it, when it's Ralph Fiennes saying, um, if you release this information publicly, it's going to start a race riot and so many people are going to die. Like we cannot release this right now. Or at least we have to wait until after the new year when there's not already all this stuff going on. And Angela Bassett saying, like, well, maybe if that's the stuff that's going to result from releasing this, maybe we need to release that. That's an interesting discussion. It's just too late in the movie when that discussion comes up. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because even like her story ends up splitting at the end where Ray finds runs off to deal with Juliet Lewis and Tom Sizemore. And then she's left to deal with the crazy cops and the race war stuff. Yeah. So even at the end, like the movie like separates into two different yeah. things. Well, and, and it feels like it's weird. Like it, even at two and a half hours, it feels like a lot of stuff is left unexplored because like the Angela Bassett character has a son who is at like a street party in like a black neighborhood, not too far from where it looks like some riots might break out just because it's New Year's Eve 1999, right? And you're thinking like, well, if you drop this bombshell onto this already volatile situation that this highly influential black character was gunned down in cold blood by the LAPD, it really does feel like that would explode into riots and whatever else, right? And this movie coming out in 1995 with Rodney King still being present in people's minds. It feels like something like that could happen, but we don't have time to explore like her character and how she's viewing that and the conflict she has of like, I want to release this information because it's the right thing to do, but it could result in people I care about suffering if I release it. Like they don't get into that because they're busy with all the other stuff going on. It's almost like you want to take the main character and his girlfriend and her new boyfriend and edit them out of the story. <laughs> make make Ralph finds into a secondary character and concentrate on the other side of the discussion, like the other the, the main storyline. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Again, nothing was nothing in the movie is done poorly, and that's what makes it hard to criticize because every scene is a scene I like. It's just, yeah. Um, all right. Does anybody else have anything else to say? No, that's it. Like, like I said, I don't know. I, I personally, I did. It's one of those movies that would I watch it again? Yeah, yeah. Because I enjoyed the stuff. 
it just could be better. Should- maybe maybe this is one of those movies that needs a remake. You know what I mean? Like, sure. Yeah, I just don't know which movie they would make if they were remaking it. How great would it be if they did both and released them the same weekend? I mean, I'd love it. Because again, I'd I'd watch both movies. I'd watch the one about the guy who is selling this weird technology and really wants his girlfriend back and there's a serial killer stalking her and yada, yada, yada. And I'd watch the one about the race stuff. There's nothing wrong with either of those movies. Just... Just they're two different movies, is I think what we're, what we're all saying. Thanks for calling the Midnight Drive-In. No one is here to take your call. For more info, check out the Midnight Drive-In on Twitter at Pod or find us on Facebook. If you want to email us, send it to themidnightdrivein at gmail.com. Remember, no outside food and drink. Anyone caught performing sexual acts at the drive-in will immediately be taken to the office. Unspeakable things will be done to you. Thanks for calling. Uh, what did everybody watch since last week? Uh, I have watched no movies, but I did. I have watched a lot more uh, classic Who. Still, still getting through the first Doctor. Uh, I forgot that. So, so like the original, the the OG OG series. So, like first Doctor, they were still doing. Um, well, you know, it's 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 British TV, so they were doing those mini serials. So, like each episode is actually five episodes. They're all kind of mini story arcs yeah. that are all to be continued style. When are the when did when were these released? We're still talking about like really yeah sixties. Really yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that's right. When was the? I'd have to look that up. I don't know. That feels right. Yeah, I thought it was like late fifties, maybe. That's close enough for the purposes of this conversation. 19, 1963. Sure. I mean, it would be like, okay, 63. I was wrong. But yeah, no, it, it's actually, I think it's better than I was thinking it was going to be. I mean, it's still, it's a, you know, it's a 1960s British sci-fi show. So it's not like the special effects are going to like pull your fucking mind. But the characters are pretty interesting. And some of the topics they're dealing with are pretty wild. Like one of the episodes, they kind of go back to the ancient. Uh, uh, oh, I can't remember which one, the Aztecs or the Maya. But it's all about they mistake one of the companions for one of their gods. And then she takes it upon herself to try to stop human sacrifice from happening. And, the, and basically, the whole episode is just her trying to do that for five hours, which is, I don't know. A little, a little deeper and well thought out than you'd think it would be. It is, of course, white people speaking white people language. <laughs> so, so that's not so great. But the concept itself of of everything's pretty good because the episode basically ends with her only convincing one person, and all he does is like leave. He just like leaves to go live in the woods or whatever. And the doctor happening to explain it to her and be like, that, "That's the way time travel works. Like you, you don't change history. Like they kept doing that, and they'll keep sacrificing people, and then famine will come, and they'll sacrifice ten thousand people, and their whole civilization will collapse. And there's nothing you can do about it. All you can do is like get to that one person, which you did, and that person's going to go lead a better life. That's that's the end of the story, you know." Seems very similar to um, the Vince Van Gogh episode. Yeah, kind of. They would do like a long, long time after that. 
But <clears throat> one of the saddest damn things ever. But yeah, yeah, I've, I I don't know. I've thought it. I thought it's been interesting, and it's it, it definitely is interesting how similar the old show is in some aspects to the way it is now. And you're like, oh, I've been doing this for fucking. 60 60 fucking years and they're still really making the same show they change little bits here and there but it's still the same show crazy that's actually really interesting so it's one of the questions i have as as a non-who fan that's one of the things i've always wondered is like the people who like the original stuff still like the new stuff and it sounds like you're saying it is similar similar totally. although there's there's always been an argument to be made and and i know this is true even in the classic stuff of the the idea of regeneration in the show and the way they kind of like the doctor changes every time he becomes it you know what i mean it's not an actor playing the same character it is a new actor playing a new character who is a continuation of the old character which is fascinating because it because it yeah. completely changes the tone of the show depending on who the doctor is so like tenet Tenant Doctor and Capaldi Doctor are not a, not the same thing, but the show in construction is still the same show, which is, I don't know, it's fascinating. And the fact that you can kind of come in where you could be like, I like this doctor, but I don't like this doctor, but I like this doctor, but I don't like this doctor, right? Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. I'm still not going to watch any of it, just so we're clear. But that's fine. <laughs> I think I think four is the exception. You're not allowed to say you don't like Doctor Four. People will kill you. That's that's, that's long stuff, Doctor. Okay, that's the one I I used to watch with my grandfather when I was a kid on some sort of weird reruns that he knew how to only watch that Doctor. But that's the that's who I thought all Doctor Who's were until recently, like until the last ten years. Yeah. Yeah, long people people love fucking long scarf doctor. <laughs> get get on board or get out. The Whovians will not tolerate you talking <laughs> fucking foul a doctor for. Tenet's kind of the same way now too. Tenet's kind of golden calf. If you don't like Tenet Doctor, then you're an asshole or something. Yeah. Anyways, what did you watch, Doug? Uh well it's kind of a bullshit question. Because technically, we are recording this early, and so we don't know what we've watched in the last week. So I'll call Brian out on that. <laughs> also, I, I really don't have anything. Um, I went and saw Die Hard in theaters. As did I. Do you guys want to know if I liked watching Die Hard in theaters or not? Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure what's left to say about that movie. I... After seeing it in theaters the next day, I drove an hour out of my way to buy a diehard advent calendar where every day you move Hans Gruber a little bit down in Nakatomi <laughs> Tower so that he'll land at the bottom on the 24th. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, that's, I mean, that's my review of the movie. Um, I mean, it's so, so good. It's so good. I mean, it was I went so to good. like a. Uh, like a generic IMAX, like it's not branded IMAX, but it's right. like an enormous screen. Okay. <clears throat> and we watched it in our local museum. See, that's interesting because I had the exact opposite experience. I went to my like art house theater and yeah. watched it. And what I enjoyed about my experience was observing a younger audience 
many of whom who had clearly never seen the movie and watching how they reacted. And they, they laugh at different jokes than I laugh at, which I thought was interesting. Um, <laughs> so like, they didn't think it was funny when it was like, like that whole thing where he like, when he, when he like, after he falls down the elevator shaft and then he's like crawling through the air vent, he's like, come out to the coast. We'll have a few laughs. <laughs> they didn't think that was funny at all. I laugh out loud just saying it. But they laughed at um, a lot of the like fucking California, like those jokes. They laughed at a lot. They loved Argyle, <laughs> um, which yeah. like great. I like all Early that stuff too. But it was just it was yeah. Yeah, I lo- <laughs> I liked our theater had a good laugh when uh, when uh, fucking um, the the guy from Family Matters, Al. Oh. Oh, when he's wow. being, when he gets to the body dropped on it, he's like, oh shit. And he's like, you know, like yeah. in reverse and stuff. Everybody and then, knows that. And then they cut to Bruce Willis, like, come on, Argyle, here's the shots, call the police. And then just cuts up to a close up of his face <laughs> with his sunglasses on, drinking, bobbing to the music on the phone. He's got and the, in the music background. So loud he can't hear it. I love it. Yeah. In the background, you just see the police car like tearing by. Yeah, I feel like that's like a universal moment that every audience can enjoy. That's a lot of fun. Did they laugh at Ali Ong sneaking a Nestle Crunch bar out of the out of the uh, snack bar? I'm not going to lie. I was laughing so hard when that happened that I have no idea if anyone else in the theater enjoyed it or not. <laughs> so it's one of my favorite moments. And when you see it, like when you've seen the movie as many times as I have, like you start to anticipate those moments, right? And you're like, it's coming. It's coming. And like, I was so excited for it. Like I've never seen him steal that chocolate bar on the big screen before. <laughs> I usually have to see that at home. And I think we can all agree, William Atherton, the biggest eighties dick that ever existed. Yeah. I mean Jesus Christ. Oh, the movie's like perfect. And if you listen to like smarter podcasts, you can hear them break down why it's perfect, where they talk about like there's certain like moments like John McLean keeps running by the same calendar on the wall and he keeps climbing through the same shafts. And it really gives you a sense of like understanding of where he is in the building and all that. And there's people whose job it is to break that down. But I'm like, remember the part where he stole the chocolate bar. <laughs> That's where I'm at. <laughs> he uh, kisses the porno girls as he uh, runs yeah. by. But that that's actually one of the moments I've heard referred to as like, if you pay attention when you're watching the movie, like it helps you really helps you place where he is in the building and it helps everything <laughs> make more sense. And I'm like, I'm sure it does. I'm sure those people are right. But yeah, you see runs by and you see him glaring at like, Oh, naked women. And then later he runs by, kisses his hand. He's like, Hey girls. The first time in my audience with like younger people, I think that the first time you walked by that um, calendar and there was just naked girls hanging there, they all laughed. And it uh-huh. occurred to me that that probably wasn't a joke in 1988. That just like, if you went to any construction site, there was just a calendar with naked girls on it, <laughs> but young people don't understand that. So they think it's funny. Yeah. I don't know. Die yeah. Hard's the best. Have you heard the recent theory going around the internet that connects like Die Hard to Ghostbusters to Family Matters? because no. <laughs> Reginald Bell Johnson's in all of them yeah. the theory being that like after witnessing the events of Ghostbusters he was so distraught that he couldn't think straight so he accidentally shot a kid which caused him to <laughs> give up on his life and move to LA which caused 
which resulted in him going through the experiences at Nakatomi Tower, which resulted in him having a complete mental breakdown and creating the Family Matters universe in his own brain. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> There's YouTube videos about it that you can look at it in more detail, but because he's like, he's in New he It's all true that he's a cop in New York in Ghostbusters four years before he's a cop in Die Hard. So. <laughs> Yeah, he's on Die Hard too. Is yeah. he in Chicago at that point? Uh, I no, want to say he's a he's uh, a Chicago guy at that point. No, I think he's still in L.A. Think so? The movie is set in Chicago, but I believe I believe, and I I haven't rewatched Die Hard two yet because we're recording this too early. Goes back to my previous point. Um, but he, because I think John McClane has moved out and joined the LAPD at that point. Yeah, and then. He is in Chicago waiting for his in-laws or whatever to land. Mm-hmm. And he's he's visiting his in-laws and waiting for his wife to land. But he waiting called, for his wife to land because she's on the plane. Yeah, yeah, she's on the plane. And he ends up being like, uh, he gets the fingerprints off the dead body and <laughs> sends them back to L.A. via fax for Al to run them, I think is what happens. Yeah, maybe you're right. Because you only get you only get Al on the phone, I believe, in that movie. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. For some reason, I thought I couldn't remember where it took place, but there is snow. There wouldn't be snow, really. No, yeah, but that's. I, I think I don't think we see Al Powell in snow. We only see John McClane in snow. That's correct. Been a while so, since I watched it. Probably gonna have to watch Die Hard two before I go to bed tonight. Now, thanks a lot. So <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really upset about that. <laughs> Anyways. Um, sorry, what were we talking about? <laughs> Die Hard, how awesome Die Hard is. Yeah, um, it's very, that's my conclusion on how awesome <laughs> it is. <laughs> very awesome. I mean, it's, it's, it's a near-perfect movie. It delivers exactly what it promises. And I, I don't know what else to say about it. Like, there are, there are movies that do certain things better but i don't know that there's a movie that delivers what die hard promises better than die hard does where it's like so this uh this cop is trying to get home to his family for christmas but terrorists take over the place where he's supposed to meet his wife so he has to kill them all in order to get back together with his wife and you're like okay that's a pretty basic concept and they're like look how good we can do it And you're like yeah that's you nailed it <laughs> like <laughs> there's a reason why there's been no reboot of the diehard franchise because they can't they just can't it's perfect you made such a fucking error saying that out loud i know it's gonna happen now god damn it <laughs> no. now when it happens i have to be mad at myself thanks a lot um do you watch anything else doug Oh, the only other thing I finally, I, I did my rush watch of the first, first four seasons of Dexter and I finished oh, it up like literally last night I finished it up. And you said first four, I believe you mean the only four. Yeah. Well, listen, there's a whole discussion we'll have, but we've already basically had the discussion about how good season four of Dexter is. We yeah. like the last couple of weeks, every time I say I'm watching it, we talk about <laughs> how great John Lithgow <laughs> is and, like now that I've watched it all, I'm like, yeah, no, we were we were right. Everything we said was correct. Um, he's he's great, and 
you know, that's all interesting. The the moral quandary I have is that it turns out my uh, free preview of Paramount Plus has been extended due to some weird Black Friday deal. So okay. now I have to decide whether I try to watch more or not. Well, there's only four, though, so. It's, but I really want to see how the kids react to their mom's death, though. <laughs> <laughs> I have this memory in my head of season five, episode one of Dexter, where he beats up with the kids and Dexter looks at them and goes, I'm very sorry for your loss. And I really want to see him say that. <laughs> I really want to see this grown man looking at children whose mom just died and being like, I'm very sorry for your loss. <laughs> the good thing is I think they go live with their grandparents in that episode and we never talk of them again. Yeah, it is very much a, Zach Morris's trash situation where they just write the children off the show. <laughs> the problem is it leads to the scenario of having Harrison around and yeah. eventually leading to like Dexter just dumping Harrison on a random girlfriend that he has in season eight. Who's yeah. It's Which all is inter- interesting because it's like, don't you think Rita's parents might want to hang out with that kid? Yeah. You could have sent him off there instead of, uh, Strange girlfriend to go live in Argentina. Sorry. Bless you. Yeah. It's, man, they really dropped. Again, seasons five and six, I think, are okay. Then there's those seven and eight you got to get through. <laughs> <sighs> Talk about. Uh, anyways, we'll find skip. out. We'll find out how disappointed I am in those if I can hold off watching them or not. You could just skip to the reboot. I don't think I can. No. Right. How could I? I mean, I don't know if there's anything uh, you super need to watch. In we don't need to know five through eight. We don't need to know about Julius. Well, and there, you know what? I think you just did is you just accidentally explained the problem with seasons seven and eight. Yeah. Is the fact that nothing that happens in seasons five or six are relevant in season seven or eight, yeah. and that's the whole problem, right? Pretty much, because. They really build it up like the rivalry with Quinn and stuff, as I recall, really kind of builds up through seasons five and six. And Robocop comes in, plays his part, but then they just kind of drop it all. Mm. So we'll see. Either I'm done watching Dexter and we'll never speak of it again, (laughs) or next week I'll be halfway through season five and like probably angry about something. And I don't know which yet. So, yeah. What have you watched, Brian? The only thing I've watched uh, otherwise is a movie called Suitable Flesh, which is the new Joe Lynch movie that is uh, an adaptation of Lovecraft's uh, The Thing on the Doorstep. Okay. I'm a big uh, Joe Lynch fan. I've met him a handful of times. He's always super cool. I always enjoy all the stuff he does. He's not a fan of this movie. No? No. Can you elaborate a little bit? Uh, nope. Purposes? That's all I was going to say. Okay. That's it. Um, now he's talked about how it's cause it's very much a throwback to like the, uh, a little bit of just the taking sort of the Stuart Gordon Lovecraft movies and then making them maybe a little bit more like nineties erotic films. Like he very much had a point that he was trying to make with it. And he's talked about it on his podcast and stuff. And he's just like, they don't make movies like those anymore. And 
He was trying to infuse something that I feel like, I don't know. I just don't know if it works. The whole movie comes off really cheap and just kind of not interesting. Um, so it's a body swap movie okay. where this guy has a, reads some thing out of a book that's definitely the Necronomicon that uh, uh, allows him to sort of inhabit people's bodies. Uh, the first two times he does it, it's temporary. And well, like the first time he does it, it doesn't last very long. Second time it lasts longer, but is not permanent. But then apparently according to the rules of this movie, if he does it a third time, he could just take over your body altogether. And, uh, it's very much led to that. He's been doing this for a very long time. <clears throat> and, uh, Heather Graham's in it. She plays like a psychiatrist and, um, Barbara Crampton plays like another doctor. And I don't know, there's a couple interesting things that starts off, but then it just sort of, I got very bored by it and just did not feel it was very interesting. I feel it's trying to be a little quirky, like the Stuart Gordon movies. And it just doesn't live up to that whatsoever. Like, I feel like it wants to be as sort of wacky and over the top as like reanimator, but it never reaches that point. And so some of the stuff just falls flat and then on top of it, you got these weird, like, saxophone playing in the background, like, sex scenes and stuff in it. Just, I don't know. They don't seem to go to go well together. So, I don't know. So, it's in keeping with the theme of this week's movies, where it's like, pick a lane, do your right thing. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Uh, and then the movie just looks very cheap, which, I mean, I mean that's low-budget filmmaking nowadays, I guess. Yeah, it's... It's tough because you don't want to criticize a film for having no budget, but also mm. you got to learn to work within your budget sometimes. Don't try to do things that are bigger than you can do. And I haven't seen this movie, yeah. so I can't comment on it, but it sounds like what you're saying is they had bigger ideas than what they were capable of pulling off. Yeah. Well, it's just weird because like, um, and maybe this is the point, like I pointed out, he, commented that you know very much was infusing it with like that 90s erotic movies type feel to it but i mean like her her um psychiatrist office is like a location that shows up multiple times and it very much feels like one of those like uh sets from like one of those late night skinamax movies where i'm just like oh yeah so if somebody bumped into that wall like the whole set would probably collapse in on itself type of feel and stuff. And so I don't know, just, it feels weird. And I feel bad because I look at his first movie, which was wrong turn two. And I mean, that was pretty low budget too, but, and if you look at it, I mean, that movie was what, 2006, 2007. So, I mean, I guess they were at least infusing some money into it because there's just special effects and stuff, but that movie just looks so much better compared to this movie. And I feel bad because I mean, it's, you know, 16 years later and I feel like, Oh man, he's not like progressing much and not saying that he's a worse director, but I'm just like, man, things are, don't look as good as they did for him when he first started. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot (sighs) of times when you're dealing with like a first time filmmaker or somebody early in their career, you give them a little leeway. Yeah. And you're looking forward to seeing what they can do in the future. And if they don't grow, you're like, okay, well, you're still delivering what you could when you started. So where does that leave us, right? 
Yeah. And I know he's, he's made like good movies since then. I enjoyed mayhem and, um, Everly was a good one. And a couple episodes I've seen of his creep show episodes. Like they look pretty good. Do you know which creep show episodes he did? Uh, not off the top of my head. I honestly have not super enjoyed that show, so I have not kept up with it. But I knew he directed a couple episodes, so I specifically watched those and thought they were okay. And then he did one with um, Barbara Crampton. So that's when they started their friendship or whatever. Um, so I'll have to look it up. But. So yeah, I don't know. It's just this one. I don't know. It's his current movie, and he was spending all summer like promoting it and stuff because uh, writer's strike and... Actor strike meant he nobody else could. So I just, I don't know. I was kind of bummed because it just wasn't as good as I had hoped it was going to be. Here's a brief glimpse of some of the truly fine pictures we've scheduled in the near future. You know, if uh, people at home can hear you, what are we doing uh, for the show next week? Uh, we are, I felt like doing some weird foreign uh, sci-fi stuff. So we are going to do... The Vindicator from 1986, which is kind of a Canadian Robocop knockoff, and Zone Troopers, which is an Italian movie which both has Nazis and aliens. I'm not even going to begin to be offended by the fact that you called Canadian movies foreign movies when one of us is Canadian. I don't even have foreign the energy. for me. <laughs> From the far off lands where well, one of you is from. For me, this statement is true. For you, it is not. <laughs> Weird foreign films. I mean, not foreign to all of us, We've... but you know. <laughs> Jesus, you could have worded it any other way. <laughs> what if? What if I was like, it's from the Quebec side, man, and then you'd be like, absolutely, yeah, that's dude. If it was, <laughs> as soon as one of the characters speaks French, I'll know where you're coming from. No problem. But good lord, <laughs> uh, Zone Troopers is on Tubi, and Vindicator is on YouTube. All right, well, you're. I'm assuming that you've taken the one that's on YouTube and saved it politely to the watch later category on the shows you do it sounds like a lot of work (laughs) it's not a lot of work at all you already looked the movie up all you had to do is click one more button i was looking it up on my youtube not the show's youtube stop doing that (laughs) (laughs) it's so funny um so even though this is a, a New Year's Eve release, do you guys have New Year's plans? Not really. No. Me neither. None of my friends throw New Year's Eve parties. What a bunch of lamos. I used to have fun New Year's Eve New Year's Eve parties, but I'm not fun anymore, so hmm. I don't know what happened there. Um oh, it's probably something I should have told you guys at the beginning of the show. Uh I went to a WWE show on Saturday. Yeah, we know you posted seven hundred times about it on social media. Cindy, uh, Cindy won tickets off the radio, so we went. It's pretty fun. It was her first ever uh, wrestling show. She's never been to one before. Nice. And uh, Seth Rollins is from Davenport, Iowa, which is where the show was taking place. So there was a big old uh, local uh, contingent for him. And he's one of the wrestlers, is he? Seth Rollins, yes. And Iowa's near where you live? 
It is. Okay. It is. These are 40 all minutes I'm of, I don't know where Iowa is. So. It's 40 minutes from where Cindy lives. Okay. Of all of the wrestlers, he's one of the ones that wrestles. He is the world champion. But that's not that's not the champion anymore, though, right? Well, like, there's two. Like, I was going to say world champion sounds really important, but my understanding is it's not the actual champion anymore. That's, that's yeah. Because then Roman Reigns is what, the WWE Universal Champion? Is that how that works? I don't know. Because they combined, they combined two different belts, so now I don't know what that means. I don't know. Feels like... Yeah, I, don't, I did like the fact that somehow the international champion was lesser than the American champion. Oh, that sounds right. Which was then less than the world champion, which would, would not be the same as the international <laughs> champion, but apparently not. Around the time like this, and we're talking what, 20 some years ago when WWF and WCW combined and they didn't yeah. merge the belts right away. You're like, well, there's too many now. It's like, it's just like, I remember at one point in time, one of Mick Foley's books, he wrote something to the effect of, look, if you're not a champion at this point, it's a little embarrassing because there's almost a belt per person. So. <laughs> well, I liked that they, they did finally merge all the belts. They had unification matches. Yeah, but it certainly seems based on the descriptions you guys have given me that they've separated some of those. Back well, out. this is what I was going to say. So they mer- they unified all the titles, right? And then they decided, let's the company's so big now, let's split the roster up into Raw and SmackDown. Mm-hmm. And then they had to bring back some of the belts that they unified. Like the world title is the old WCW title, like the big gold belt that Ric Flair used to walk around with. All right. Yeah. That be- that became the world title. It's- they have a different version of it now because they don't use the big gold belt anymore. This one has to has to be a big gold belt with the WWE logo plastered in the middle of it. Otherwise, you know, nobody would, would know what it was how for. How would anyone know? Yeah. And then uh, they brought back the United States title because one of the brands didn't have a mid-card title like the Intercontinental title. So even though, and then, of course, each show got their own tag team championships. So then basically everything they unified, they just tore back apart. To uh, to make sure that each show had enough belts for everybody, and then uh, you know they kind of got rid of the draft split and kind of got rid of some belts, and then they did the draft split again, and so now they need more titles because Roman Reigns wrestled seven times last year. So, so they're like, we need a we need a we need a, another world title. Is there a reason why he gets to stay champion but only wrestle seven times? I don't know. Because he's the most dominant champion ever. I don't. I don't know. I'm not. Again, I don't watch a lot of wrestling now, so I won't tell anyone what they should or shouldn't enjoy. But it really seems absurd to me that that guy is like they're advertising like he's had a longer reign than Hulk Hogan, and they're like, yeah, but he doesn't. Like, how do you fight less than Hogan did? <laughs> like Hogan had to fight twelve times a year back in the day. Yeah. I mean, like Hogan, it was like, here, beat these 32 nameless mooks from the undercard that we brought in <laughs> and then have your one big match a year. But at least he beat 32 guys a year. Like, it's like, 
at least there was some semblance of realism to the idea that he was winning and not just, I don't know. It seems absurd to me that you would let a guy wrestle so little. But again, who am I to say? If that's what people want to see, that's what people want to see. Uh, let's see. Uh, to, to, how many matches has Roman Reigns had in 2023? All right, I was a little off. I just threw seven out as a generic number, but he's only had 11 matches in 2023. Again. So it's, it's not that much better. I don't know. It, it seems if you're not wrestling at least once per pay-per-view, you probably shouldn't be the champion no. the whole time. Oh, here we go. I actually was sort of correct. Out of the 11 matches, he's worked four house shows. And the okay. remaining seven were premium live events, which is what they call pay-per-views now. All right, so... Is she claiming victory? This is this has been a roundabout way of your like. Look, I was right though. No, no, I would just was surprised. I was surprised myself that I was why? actually. I'm curious why he why like. I don't know. Again, I'm not up to date on wrestling. The fuck is he doing working house shows if he's only doing eleven fights a year? <laughs> why are any of them at house shows? That doesn't make sense. I would almost assume they're probably. Uh, like at least a couple of them or Madison Square Garden events that aren't televised. Still, why? <sighs> like, you'll sell those out anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I could see maybe, like, if one of them is, like, you know, some old wrestler is having his final match or something like that, you know what I mean? Like you bring in, yeah. like, a big name for that, that moment, but that doesn't happen four times a year. Yeah. Anyways, it's largely irrelevant. <laughs> Yeah, it was funny because there was a couple matches that uh, like the the WWE Women's Tag Team Champions wrestled. And I was like, okay, I know who they both are. And then the two people that came out to challenge them, I'm just like, I've never heard of these two women in my entire life. But that's what house shows used to be. There's a lot of, here's like some names you've heard of. And then here's some people that are up and coming that we're giving them a chance and see how they can do. Sure. Uh, the guy in front of me is like, oh, they're from NXT. And I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and then coincidentally on Tuesday, Tuesday? Today's Tuesday. Yes. No, yesterday. So it would have been on Raw. Yesterday uh, Monday, Brian. That's how that works. So Monday. That's how it works. Um, the two NXT women actually beat them on Raw and won the championships. So. Yeah. But hey man, yeah, if, it, if it makes you feel any better, in like 1998, I was at a WWE house show, and the Hardys came out, and the entire crowd chanted "Jobbers, Jobbers" <laughs> the entire time, and they made their television debut like a week later, <laughs> and nice. proceeded to take over the entire tag team division. <laughs> like I, like it's. This was what I was like in university. I remember like I'd go to school and be like, You were at that show? Yeah. Did you chant jobbers at those guys? Yeah, we all we all did. It's okay. Let's all pretend we didn't do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> we all like, like there's 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 like twenty five thousand of us chanting at that. Yeah, but none of us know anyone who did it though, right? No, none of us know anyone who did it. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. It was fun. Um I didn't hundred percent know what was going on, but it was still uh it's wrestling, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's, it's wrestling. You got to watch them wrestle. <laughs> it did not encourage me to watch Raw the next. I would, uh, I would absolutely go to a house show for free right now if I could, if that opportunity yeah, presented totally. itself. If somebody else won tickets to a house show and invited me to go, I'd yeah. go for sure. So, yeah, it was. 
it was good. And she was really excited about it because she knows I like wrestling. I mainly watch AEW, but she knows I like wrestling. So she essentially tried to win him for me and she won. That That's super nice. It is. But uh, then she likes experiencing new stuff like that. So she had a great time. Well, I don't support experiencing new things just for the record. Plus she thought Drew McIntyre was super hot. So, well, that's important because he looks nothing like you. So that's, that is very, that's, that's really, really, true. really important for you yeah. to know. It's good that she's keeping you in your place. Yeah. The bare minimums is, oh, he's a big burly dude with a beard. Yeah. That's the most generic way I was able to compare myself to. That's, that's really unfair. She's just like, oh, yeah, he was hot. I'm like, yeah, trust me, I know. <laughs> I know what you were thinking. Comes out well, now, wearing his kilt with a giant broadsword. Now what you got to do is go to some female-centered event and point out how attractive the women there are and see what kind of reaction you get from her, because I'm sure it'll be just as fair. Yeah, sure. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night.